Father, thank you just that you have given us um, these songs that are written for our benefit and our betterment of our worship and God, that we can learn from them and the things that we have sung, I pray that those will begin to move in our hearts and take root within us, God, and begin to grow us more in our understanding and our knowledge of who you are and what you have done for us and help us just grow in the knowledge of your grace and truth to us through your spoken word today and let not this attitude and spirit of worship um, fade as we uh, put the music aside and we take up your word, God, but that the worship continue just through your word as it should, that we worship you in spirit and truth. We look to you, God, your Holy Spirit within us to teach us and to guide us and help us not to trust in man's words, Lord, but to look to your holy scriptures to be the, the thing that guides us and to anchor ourselves to in a world that is constantly promoting change and promoting progressivism, Lord, that we cling to what we know is solid and firm foundation underneath us, and that is your word. That helps us to be faithful to it today and just start teaching our understanding of it. May we divide it rightly and glorify your name. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you may all be seated. Well, for most of you, you know we're in the book of Colossians, and we've been in chapter three for just one Sunday, actually. I thought maybe it was a couple of Sundays, but we taught on verses one through four last Sunday, and we will be going through verses five through 11 for this morning's teaching. So I'm gonna give you a little bit of time to turn there. Colossians 3, beginning in verse, verse five. And we might be going back some to verses one through four, what we taught on last Sunday, but for the most part, we'll be confined to five through 11 this morning. All right. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So after Paul has now sufficiently denounced all of these false paths to God, we move to these very practical ways our Christian walk should be lived out in our life lived here on this earth. So really the practical matters is where we are now in this reading and studying through of Colossians. And chapter three is really where that starts for us. And last week we talked about how in salvation that our orientation has now been changed. You think about a compass and what a compass orients itself to, orients itself to north. But before we came to salvation in Christ, we were oriented to a, a, a distant, far, uh, far or, other-oriented path, I guess I should say, other than Christ. And we were no longer, we were no seeking after Christ. We were not desiring a life in Christ or the things of him. We're living a life of self-gratification and indulging in everything that our sinful hearts desire. But now, in Christ, we should be seeking the things that are of God, that is founded in a relationship with him. Our sufficiency is now Christ, having been born again in him, that rebirth, and it is to then want to become more like him, to seek to be more Christ-like in our attitude towards others, and that includes ourself. Because if we think about our orientation, we were probably oriented more to self, our self-indulgences, our self-seeking ways. And now if we are indeed oriented more towards Christ, that we have changed in our disposition, our attitude towards ourself. It is no longer us living for this world, but now it should be us living for Christ. So let's evaluate, since God's word continually calls for that self-check, you know, rather than an other's check. And a lot of times what we might be 
tempted to do is when we read through lists of sins like we did while we were reading verses 3 through 11, is we take them and we apply them to others. It's like, oh, well, that, that's so-and-so that does this, or that's so-and-so that does this. Let us not do that. We take this and we view ourselves. Is this us? Is this found in me? And if it is, what does Paul tell us to do with it? What does God tell us to do with it? Obviously being the inspiration from which Paul is writing these things. So seeking to be more Christ-like in our attitude towards others and self. And now we're gonna do this evaluation. That if the new nature within us is real, one of the first things that we find is that our Christian life should be marked by a definitive change. Christ did not stay in the tomb, that he came out a risen, living, victorious savior, and so we too should consider our lives having risen victoriously with him after our death to the old self with all of its habitual ways that were patterned after our fleshly desires to now we have that new life with him and it should be lived in a pattern of obedience. One of the things that Stephen was describing to the young people, it's a continuance of being sanctified by his power that is now within us by the indwelling of his Holy Spirit, causing us to strive towards that holiness to be holy as he is holy. We strive to be that and that righteous living and striving to be more like him. And if we indeed have died and then we have been subsequently raised with Christ, then our disposition towards sin has changed, particularly to our own sin. You should be able to see this in your walk. And in our verses this morning, one could infer that Paul is saying now to us, let's get to work. Let's get to work in this. He has very sufficiently defined who Christ is, that he is God, and that he is supreme. He has very very clearly called attention to what false teachings are and what they are getting wrong, and that if it doesn't lead us to conclude that Christ is our sufficiency and able to save, then we need to toss it out, not get taken captive by it. And now, You have a responsibility as a servant of God to continue to grow in him. You have been given this new life and we have to nurture and we have to care for it. And that spiritual nourishment that we talked about last week, we realize it comes by time in his word, time spent daily in his word and in prayer unto him. But then there is that practical application of what it should look like in our lives and that should be what Paul is telling us this morning is that you should put it to death. Put that sin, therefore, to death because of all that I've told you of Christ and who you are in Christ. 1 John 2.29 says, If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So let us practice this. Verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Last week, we saw the the where and the who we look to, who we need to orient ourselves to. Back in verse two, Paul says that we should set our minds on the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is the one we look to the enablement of the Holy Spirit within us to overcome and achieve this life that's lived in him. And it's to not set our minds on the things that are of this world. And then Paul gives us a list of what some of these things are. Because if we're not setting our mind on the things above and fixating our gaze towards Christ, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith, the one who helps us in our struggle with sin, then where is our orientation going to be? It's going to be back to the things Uh, the elementary principles of this world that we are tempted to fall back to, even those who are in Christ. You know, if we aren't continually growing and nourishing our spirit by his word and through prayer, then we are going to fall back to the old, old patterns and old ways that once defined or marked our lives. And there is always that temptation and that, that wants to draw us back to those things, tempt us back to it. Having a Christ centered life though does not render us now useless to other things. 
You know, we are to be fixated on Christ. Our life is to be lived for him. We are dead to sin, alive to him. We are what the, the Bible calls a duolos to Christ. That literally means a slave now to Christ. But we still have things that we have to do. Our responsibilities in this world, we have jobs, we have families that require things from us. We have to support our, ourselves. We have to support them. And even Paul, to support himself in the ministry for a time, he went back to his tent making. So we see evidence of that, that he didn't just you know, f- forsake all of those things that were necessary to supply for his needs and the needs of others. And I don't think that is what Paul is saying here when he says we are to not set our minds on earthly things. We have scripture portray what godly relationships should look like, a husband and wife relationship, how we're to take responsibility for our families. So it's not just like, totally uh, severing our ties with with family and things, but we are to take responsibility with what God has given and blessed us with. But now, if you're uh, an exotic dancer or you're a drug dealer, you know, we need to talk about those things because scripture would say, yeah, you need to, that's things you need to put to death because that would be professions that are sinful. This is not what I'm talking about. We have things that we're responsible for that God has given us to take care of on this earth. So the preoccupation now with, with Christ and our relationship with him does not divest ourselves of everything that we're responsible for here as well. Now, what we should see is a noted change in our attitude towards sin in our lives. You know, looking inwardly, what, is, what does this look like in me now that I am in Christ and that disposition that I talked about towards sin, and it has to do with our attitude towards it. And Paul launches into the responsibility of how we are to act towards it. And so how do we act when it comes up in our life, when sin rears its ugly head? Paul says, put it to death. Put it to death. And it is not that Paul is now saying that we are now to practice one of the very things that he has denounced early on. Remember that idea of asceticism? where we practice self-denial of food and drink and all of these other things or even flog ourselves in in open public to try to appear like we've got more of a a spiritual walk with God than others do or maybe try to bring ourselves into this special spiritual state uh, by beating ourselves or denying ourselves. That's not what Paul is, is talking about because he's already said, you know, this is a false practice. This will not lead you towards God. Now, if we start to teach those, those things, then we're teaching a works-based salvation here, and we've gotten way off the rails. It's not what Paul is telling us. You know, it's by grace we have been saved through faith, and this not of ourselves, it is the gift of God. So why are we to put this sin to death? Isn't that a work towards salvation, to put it to death? You know, doesn't that require an act of ours? And I would say no, because you have been saved And now you have been given the capacity and the wherewithal by his spirit within you to now activate these things, to uh, take the responsibility for putting this sin to death because you are indwelled. You are a child of God now. In Romans 6, 6, um, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. We have been freed from that old self in a sense. At the moment of salvation, our old self was crucified with Christ that our body of sin might be done away with. And that positional reality, however, must be worked out in a believer's practical living. You know, what we see in, in our life lived out here. There can be no holiest, holiness or maturity in a life where sin runs unchecked. We're to continue to evaluate ourselves, check ourselves against his word. Philippians 2, 12 through 13, Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This, I believe, is Paul talking about the the putting of the sin to death, the putting aside that as we work through our salvation, realizing it is God working in us, beginning to, to bring these things to realization to our minds, to confess, to repent of them, to set them aside, put them to death. It's that continual working of his spirit in us in that salvation with much fear and trembling. We have died to sin's penalty, but sin's power, 
as I think every one of us knows, can still be strong. And our flesh is weak. And that is why we must continually put sin to death by yielding to the Holy Spirit. In Romans 8, 13, Paul says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. MacArthur says, sin is like a deposed monarch who no longer reigns, nor has the ability to condemn, but works hard to debilitate and devastate all his former subjects. Sin is still potent, and success against it demands the Spirit's powerful. There is a powerful attraction to sin. We can't deny that. In this world that we live in, there are many draws and many attractions to sin, but we need to put to death those things now that we belong to Christ. And verse five is one of the two lists that we find in this passage. And the first list of sins are those that could be categorized as perverted love. God gives us a love, a relationship between a husband and wife that is an agape love, a love that he, he blesses us with and within the confines of marriage, the things that we're going to describe here um, when it comes to, to relationships and intimacy within a marriage, they are approved of God in a marriage, but these things are outside of that and that's why scholars here would define or categorize these sins that we're about to go through as perverted type of love. Not a God-centered love, but a corrupted love after the things of the flesh. And then the other list, which we'll get to here in just a moment, has to do with what scholars define as wicked hate. Wicked hate. And it's more dealing with things that come out of someone's mouth, uh, revealing what really is in the heart. So you could also say that the first list of sins has to do with sins that relate to feelings or emotions, and the other has to do more with the sins that relate to our speech. And then we have a couple of verses in between these lists that Paul gives us that I think define the reasons that we should be putting this sin to death in us. So these lists are also not to be viewed as an exhaustive list, that here they are, and if you can just check them off, that nope, not doing these things, that you're good. (laughs) We have other sins out there that we fall victim to. Uh, This is just a warning about the seriousness of sin, and uh, it can they're broad categories that can define um, a lot of things that we sometimes uh, fall victim to. Um, This is Paul identifying some of the characteristics of sin that we once walked in. But before we do that, I want us to stop and just look at some of the key words within the passage that we just read. Uh, To understand something about our life lived in this world, we should understand that when it comes to sin and putting it to death, that it doesn't mean that we will never sin again. By no means am I giving anyone, though, including me, a free pass when it comes to sin, right? Never, never do that. He has saved us not as a get-out-of-jail pass, and now we can go out and just live our lives as we please. He would tell us in Romans 6, 1 through 2, what shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may, may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So by me saying that... Um, once you become a Christian, that you're going to live a sinless life or, or that you should be striving to live a sinless life, um, there's no one that can hold uh, up to that. We are going to stumble, we are going to fall, but that's not a reason to go out and sin. Living a sinless life is impossible, but what is it that defines or marks your life will, should, will and should change? There is no longer a love affair with the sin in your life. Paul will say it in verse 7, that in these two you once walked, once walked and were living in them. This was something that identified a pattern that marked your life. And then at the end of verse nine, he states, put off the old self with its practices. Like these ways that we walk were just a habit of our life. If someone from the outside looking in had to just kind of summarize our character, they might use one of these sins to define us, and that that should just not be anymore. You should be able to evaluate yourself and see if, if your pattern of your life is still in that sin, then have you really been saved? We should be marked by a, a very clear change in our life. So he's not describing the perfect life that is never stumbling into sin, but patterns and practices and how you once walked. And the Apostle John writes about this as well and describes it 
as a practice as well. In 1 John 3, verses three through nine, in fact, go ahead and turn there with me. I know I've been running through these verses really quickly, but we do have quite a bit to cover this morning. But 1 John chapter three, hold your place in Colossians three, and we might be going back to 1 John, I believe, um, because there's some similarities with what John is writing about. So 1 John 3, verses three through nine, we'll see this word practice come up uh, several times for us as we read. And everyone who thus hopes in himself purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice, a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness, sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or knows him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, and the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. You see, we cannot get good at something unless we practice it. But a practice could be described as this, this pattern of one's life. And what John is saying there and what Paul is saying there is you're not going to be void of sin, totally sinless, but a continual practice of your life is to be striving for righteousness in putting that sin to death in your life. The things that once defined you should no longer define you. This should now be the practice of your life, practicing righteousness as he is righteous. And if you have a talent for something, um, it's only going to grow so much unless you put practice to it, right? And we have been given the gift of his spirit and now we have been turned on, in a sense, for service unto him, so let us practice. Let us practice, let us grow in the knowledge of him and his truth that we may, like Paul, would charge Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And so without getting into sin, let us get into these sins that Paul lists here and just briefly describe each one. And remembering that there are others that could be listed here as well, but these are just a, a sampling and broader categories where other sins might fit under. But the first one is sexual immorality. And the Greek word there is pornia. And it refers to, now, I'm reading just the definitions here um, that come from Strong's Concordance. It refers to general sexual acts outside of legal marriage, often linked to pagan practices. Symbolically, it stands for idolatry, the forsaking of the true God in order to worship idols. Idolatry is unfaithfulness towards God. When we depart from God in how we view that Love, like this is a corrupted kind of love that goes after and indulges the flesh. And many of the cities that Paul went through in his early missionary journeys, like Antioch and Corinth, they were caught up in worship of other gods and part of the practices of worshiping those other gods involved sexual immorality. And you know, Paul lists this as the first one. He's encountered it firsthand. And he knows what this looks like. Um, so this is one of those sins that he describes here that we need to put to death. The other one is impurity. And this is a broader term that's figuratively referring to moral uncleanness in thought, word, and deed. It describes a state of moral impurity, especially sexual sin. And then the word passion or pathos and this means an experience of strong desire, an affection of the mind, a passionate desire, not always a bad thing, but in the context here it is, it is a drive force that does not rest until it's satisfied. So I think it's speaking of, of the sexual urges here being in, in this list of uh, having that passion towards that. And then there's evil desire. And I recognize that some of your translations may tr get these a little bit different, but evil desire means... Evil describes the wickedness which comes from within a person and combined with a desire, with desire, it makes it a perverted desire. Strong desires which are perverted and unrestrained and which originate from our nature, our sin nature, which is fallen and corrupt. And then we have covetousness or greed. 
which is idolatry, is how Paul defines that one. And this means to have, to have or to always want more. It describes a strong desire to acquire more and more material possessions, especially that which is forbidden. And since it is included with the list of perverted types of love, I, I would say that you could, you could maybe define it as the coveting of a neighbor's wife. You know, desiring someone who is bound in a covenantal marriage to another and having that desire to have the sexual relations with someone that isn't yours, that you aren't bound to. So that could be a form of covetousness or greed, but we know that expands into all kinds of other things about, you know, wanting Stephen's truck or, you know, wanting somebody else's money, those, those kinds of things. So these are sins that are still common to man today. You know, we could go through this list, and these are things that we do need to evaluate ourselves against. No matter how we try to say that we have changed as a culture or a people, the enticement to sin in these ways is still there, and we are not immune to these temptations. The technology we have today, for good or bad, has given rise to the ability to view things readily that we have not been able to before. But our cravings for sin have not changed, and our flesh will search out a way to satisfy itself if it's given into. And that's why we need to continually put these things to death within us. First John, if you're still in that book, just go back to verse two, or chapter 2, verses 16 through 17. We were in chapter 3 just a while ago. But in chapter 2, 16, it says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who desires the will of God abides forever. So John describing the very things that they were tempted by back then, that Adam and Eve were tempted by in the garden, and the things that we are still tempted to today. The enemy's pattern doesn't change. The way or the media by which he will entice us to that sin may look a little bit differently, but they're all following those same things. The lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. You can pretty much fit every one of our sins into one of those categories, and he's still a master at using it today, and we're still very easily deceived if we are not practicing faithfulness and righteousness unto God. So... Just something to keep in mind, and we're going to move on from that list. We will have another to cover here in just a moment. But Paul writes in verse 6, On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. All right, so there's the warning in between about what these sins will incur. The very wrath of God is coming on account of these. Paul writes about the wrath of God in a much more detailed way in Romans chapter 1 where he tells us that the wrath of God is being revealed against man for all their unrighteousness and ungodliness and it's by their unrighteousness that they suppress the truth because what can be known about God has been made plain to them and they are without excuse. So we're all without excuse for our sin and no matter what kind of good excuse we think we have to have sinned and then come before God and say, well, it was this that caused me to do that. And I think often, and I've done it myself, especially when I was younger, is like, I would blame the devil. Well, the devil made me sin. It's like, no, you are responsible for your own sin. And because of that, the wrath of God is, is coming towards that sin. It, it has been and it will continue to be. So we must have someone to rescue us, to save us from that wrath and that's why we need a savior. We don't have any excuse for our sin before a holy and righteous God. James tells us that we are lured in by our own desires in James chapter one, verses 13 through 15. Some of you are very familiar with this passage, but he would write, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You know, all sin is deserving of God's wrath, and it naturally stands in opposition to God's holiness. You know, God is on a level of holiness that we are not, that we can't attain on our own by our own works. His judgment against that sin is death, and we are told in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. And we will all experience a physical death that was a result of the fall. But another aspect of that is that spiritual death that I believe Romans 6.23 is also speaking of there. There's an eternal punishment for the unrepentant sinner who dies in their sin. 
And God's judgment is death and an eternal separation from the love of the Father. And this is what our sin deserves. And we couldn't pay the penalty for our own, for our own sin through our physical death because we ourselves are sinful. It required a spotless, blemishless lamb, the lamb of God. So it took a loving God to pay the price himself, crucifying the innocent lamb of God upon the cross, pouring his wrath out against our sin on his beloved son. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God is what scripture says. And how undeserving we were, but how merciful that he was towards us in giving us a propitiation for our sin. Put your sin to death. That's how serious this is. Jesus would, I think, take the extreme route. You know, we like to think of gentle Jesus, humble, lowly, meek, and mild, and then here is his word and his attitude towards sin in Matthew chapter five, dealing with those lustful sins of the heart. He says in his Sermon on the Mount, beginning in 527, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. We can't think that Jesus and Paul are opposed here. When Paul says, put it to death, In a physical way, this is what it would look like. This is not what the passage should be taken as, but it would be this extreme with your putting of it to death and tossing it away because this is what sin costs. This is where sin leads. Let's come into verse seven now. Because of these sins, the wrath of God is headed towards us and then in seven, in these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. There was an old game show, and I think it was out of syndication, um, and then somebody resurrected it, but it was called This This Is Your Life. I don't know if any of you remember that. Uh, I think it started out as a radio broadcast under a different name, and then it became this, uh, like a game show in a sense. And in that game, they had a person who was the main contestant or guest, and they were surprised with a presentation of their past life in the form of a narrative. And it was read by the host, who was Ralph Edwards, and then they would bring these guests on that would be hidden behind the scenes or behind a screen, and they would share reminiscings about this person's life, and then that person would guess who they are. But it was a game show, and it was called This Is Your Life. And when Paul says, in these two you once walked, when you were living in them, I'm so glad that our life is not presented before everyone in this way. I think people would see a lot of ugly things about us, but it doesn't mean that we shouldn't take inventory of who we once were, because Paul is calling us to do this. This is why you once walked. You remember that? Remember, now it should be detestable for you. So detestable, so distasteful that you want to put it to death. You were living in these things, and it's an ugly list, But if we are real honest with ourselves, I think we can find just about every one of them that we have done in some way, shape, or form. And I hope that we can say that that was my life and not this is my life. So let's look at this second list similarly to the first one. And remember, these are relational types of sins. What is our attitude towards others? And not just while we are with other people, you know, treating others kindly because others are around viewing it, but then we... We tuck ourselves away in a back room somewhere and all of a sudden all these thoughts and emotions start coming up about them and we're we're seething with anger or malice or rage towards them. You're just as guilty there as you are out in front of people. So just remembering these are things that are, are rising up or welling up in our hearts. And it's imperative that we're just as diligent to keep ourselves pure in mind and heart um, even when we're not around others because God is watching. He's omniscient. He sees the heart. Let's look at this first one. There's anger, or orge, and that is a deep, smoldering, resentful bitterness. It is the settled heart attitude of the angry person. That is the book definition of anger. The one for wrath, wrath is the Greek word thumos. 
And it is an intense expression of the inner self, frequently expressed as strong indignation, the more active emotion than anger. It's a burning anger. Malice is kakai. It's a mean-spirited or vicious attitude or disposition, a desire to harm other people, but often hides behind good actions. That one really got to me, how we can hide malices hidden. Slander, blasphemia, blasphemia, slander. It's utterance of false charges or misrepresentation which defame, belittle, or damage another's reputation, spreading gossip or lies. Obscene talk or abusive talk is how other translations might, might put it. And this one's a little harder. Iscolagia. And that is foul or coarse language that has no place in the body of Christ. It's considered in poor taste. And then verse nine, he says, do not lie. And that's pseudomai. And just to communicate what is false with the evident purpose of misleading involves not only the communication of a falsehood, but also the intent to deceive or manipulate. Paul would write of these, put these away from your mouth. Just put them away from your mouth and I would say your heart as well because that's where things like this originate. Matthew 15, 18 through 19, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Our words can do so much harm to others and this should not be within the body of Christ. Outside the body of Christ, we are still to live as image bearers of God and we're ambassadors for Christ. We should be showing love towards one another so that the outside looking in can see that these, these people are truly changed, changed by God through relationship with Jesus Christ. But sometimes the worst wounds with words can happen within the body of Christ. And Paul in his letters is continually challenging and encouraging the believers to to be kind and glorify God with the things that come out of your mouth. Because the warning about the things that proceed from the mouth are very strong for us. These things are just as worthy as death as the sexual sins. They are just as severe. The consequences are still there. The wrath of God is coming at these things as well. And in a couple of Sundays though, we will look at the things that we should be practicing, the things that should come forth from our mouth. Just a little bit later on in verse 16, we'll probably be there next Sunday, it says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So if you're looking to take something out of your mouth and then replace it with something, verse 16 is what it should be replaced with. But we'll get into that a little bit later. Let's continue um, Quickly through verse 11, 9 says, do not lie. We've already covered what lying is. Don't lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jews, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. So seeing that you have put off these practices and have put on the new self, what we have in place of the old you should be a new you that you are now clothed with Christ, clothed in his righteousness, and now you have his presence within you. He promised the indwelling of his Holy Spirit, which joins us with us with him and helps us in our understanding of him. The Holy Spirit is our teacher. The Holy Spirit is what sanctifies us and grows us to be more Christ-like. And I'm gonna steal from Stephen's verses this morning that he used with the kids in Galatians 3, 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ dying to who we once were, now being risen with Christ, and we have his life, we have put him on, that we are dead and now we are alive. And in salvation, we are being renewed in knowledge after the image of our creator, is what Paul says in verse 10. Put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of his creator. Who is our creator? Creator God, but creator Son, Jesus Christ's Son, and Holy Spirit. A danger exists though when we slip into spiritual laziness and one of the things I notice about myself when it comes to physical fitness is that I can be pretty committed and diligent for about three weeks but then I start to slip up a little bit and sometimes it's more immediate 
where I'll just step away from it altogether and it's like, okay, I'm done with this. Maybe it's an injury or sometimes it's just a slow fading and before too long, you know, I'm sitting in my easy chair watching TV and just stuffing my face with a bag of chips and uh, that's what, you know, physical fitness looks like for me sometimes. But if we were to think about our spiritual fitness, what are we doing for that? Am I doing the same thing with that that I do with my physical fitness you know, I think we should want to be fit bodily, but at the same time, more importantly, we want to be fit spiritually. What are we feeding into ourselves? Are we taking in that spiritual nourishment daily? Are we being diligent in, in the practices of putting that sin to death or setting it aside, going into our word, checking ourselves against his truth to see if these things be in us, if they need correction? It's, it's always a continual process. And I think about the spiritual battle that is ongoing in my life. You know, what does my time in the word look like in the time in prayer? It needs to be a continual practice in my life. My mind needs daily renewing. Our spiritual fitness is enabled already by our life in Christ, but we don't let up. We don't let up. Philippians 3, 13 through 15, Paul says, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You know, Paul is using physical fitness terms with the, the sports people in that day. You know, this is the type of terminology we need to keep in mind as we're striving ahead in Christ for spiritual fitness. Paul would continue in that passage, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. So our aim is to be more Christ-like, not looking to a man who appears to have a good spiritual walk. You know, someone that comes along and may try to deceive you and say, hey, I'm a good spiritual fitness coach, you should follow me. Who do we turn to? Who do we look to? We look to the one who is able as I mentioned earlier, Christ is the author, the perfecter of our faith, and as Paul wrote to us in verse one of this same chapter, is that we're to fixate our minds above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is our example. He is the one that we look to, not a pastor, an elder, or a deacon, or you know someone up here singing beautiful songs just because they seem to have it all together doesn't mean you pattern your life after them after Christ alone. He's the only one that is sufficient. Man is going to fail you. I will fail you. I I hope that you're not following me, but uh, that we're looking to Christ. And in this space of putting to death and laying aside these sinful practices, uh, let me back up here. Uh, I had a quote that I wanted to read for you. And it comes from John Owen. He was a Puritan. He says, uh, and the way he warned about sin. It says, sin is never less quiet than when it seems to be most quiet, and its waters are for the most part deep when they are still. Satan is likely to attack when a believer is most satisfied with his spiritual life. That is when pride, the chief of sins, easily sneaks into our lives unnoticed and lead us to believe that contentment with ourselves is contentment in God. In this space of our putting sin to death and laying aside the sinful practices, there's a quality. Right, I'm not talking about this, this thing that they're really promoting in the workplaces a lot right now, that kind of a quality uh, that we all get along, but there is a striving towards that common goal of being more Christ-like, and that begins with our salvation, the common salvation that we share in Christ. We are all given the same spirit, that helps us in our weaknesses. We are not getting a different salvation or a different grace because of our social standing or how much money we have or our skin color or what type of cultural background we have. We don't deserve anything special because of that. We have a common Savior who has showed us all the same mercy, not because of who we are or what we have done, but because of what he has done for us. He died so that we could die and he lives so that we can live. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. It's said that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. I'm gonna close with this because I read a daily devotional while studying for today's teaching, and in that devotional, the writer describes how she enjoyed cleaning her house from top to bottom. Very thorough with it, 
but that it never stayed clean for long. It would just always get dirty again, and so she kind of grew tired of having to clean it that thoroughly because it got dirty so quickly again. So rather than work so hard at it with a thorough cleaning of the house, she would just keep it reasonably tidy so that at least it would appear, appear as if it were clean, even if it really wasn't. And it seemed like a reasonable compromise and convinced others that it was clean and even convinced herself sometimes that it was clean. But when the blinds were opened on the windows, the light revealed what was really there. The dust and grime showed revealing, show, revealed what was, it truly was and that it wasn't clean. And Jesus does this with the religious Pharisees, the hypocrites. Sometimes we can fall in that category as well. Those who concentrated on the externalities of their religion, you know, what the appearance was like on the outside in order to try and make their appearance holy, but then they neglected the heart holiness. But when the light of Jesus shined in on them, he revealed what was truly there. The truth that their outward religious life was just used as a cover-up for their wickedness. The religious acts may not have been necessarily wrong, but they are wrongful if they are used as a cover-up for our sin and our wickedness. Keeping up appearance in our housework, right? Keeping up appearance in our housework. It isn't wrong, necessarily, but pretending our hearts are clean when they're not, that is wrong. Only those who are clean on the inside will be welcomed in by God when, he, when we will appear before him one day. And we hope that he would say, well done, thy good and faithful servant, rather than depart from me, for I never knew you. So is your heart ready? And maybe some deep cleaning is needed. Now is the time to take care of it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you and we thank you for your holy word and your truth to our hearts. And as it begins to maybe take hold in our minds and our hearts, I pray it is only the essence of your truth. And if there's any of my words that try to manipulate or victimize emotions just to try to conjure up some kind of feeling of an attempt to get to this place where they can feel like they're, they're good before you, God, I don't want that to be my words. I want that to be um, your word into their hearts, God, that you convict us of sin. That there's many that we've listed here and defined today, God, and you, you've given us your word so we can check ourselves against us and know against it and know if these things be in us, that you would just reveal us our hearts. They are like an exposed open book before you. You read every page, you know every word, God, and just please come in and renew and restore, cleanse. Purify us, Lord. We seek you. God, I pray for those that may be here right now that are empty and void of any presence, any life from you. Maybe they've put on a lot of externalities to try to to fool men, but now they realize that they are an open book before you, God, and that you would just begin to convict and draw their heart to you and show them your saving mercy and grace such that you took your son and you put him on the cross and he bore the wrath that we deserved in his body and him who knew no sin you made to be sin for us that we might have his righteousness then given to us and that he didn't stay dead, that he rose victoriously and we have that life in him. The ability that we are enabled by to, to put that sin to death and help it to be a continual practice in our life. To set these things aside, Lord, consider ourselves dead to them and when we do stumble in them, that we come before you quickly, we confess it, that you restore us, that you put us on the path that would glorify you, God. Help us to seek to advance your kingdom and just share your love and truth with those who are just willing to listen and that they would take it to heart, Lord. We love you and we praise you. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.